Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofero, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. Today, I'm joined by two amazing colleagues in the children's bereavement world. Christina Flores and Flor Guevara are part of Bo's Place, a grief support program similar to the Dougie Center based in Houston, Texas. Welcome, Christina. Welcome, Flor. Thank you, Jenna. This is Christina. Thank you, Jenna. This is Floor. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast today and calling in from Houston. I asked Christina and Floor to discuss the phenomenal work they've been doing since 2014, where they offer grief support groups in Spanish. And this is part of trying to keep pace with the Houston area's growing Spanish-speaking population. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to provide culturally appropriate grief support in the Latino community and also share some ideas and suggestions for other service providers who are looking to best meet the community's needs. Before we jump into today's topic, Flora and Christina, could you talk a little bit about what you do at Both Place and how you got connected to this work? Yes, love to share a little bit more about that. This is Floor. Officially, my title is um, Spanish Outreach Manager. What that translates to is that here I co-manage the Spanish-speaking family group along with Christina. I also manage a school-based program where we go out into the community and provide support groups on different school campuses. Also, I'm involved in a lot of the outreach specifically to the Latino community in Houston for our Spanish-speaking programs. So really trying to get the word out to the community. Yes, for sure. So this is Christina, and I am the bilingual ongoing groups manager here at Bo's Place. And my title probably denotes nothing of what I do besides the fact that I manage something and I'm bilingual. So to kind of mm-hmm. explain it, I, as Flora mentioned, uh, we co-manage our Spanish programs. And along with that, I also manage one of our bigger family groups here at Bo's Place, our ongoing groups. So uh, a big responsibility that I have is to onboard all of our new families, both in English and in Spanish, and then help out in whatever ways that I can when I'm not in the office with the Spanish outreach as well. So you're really, it sounds like the first point of contact for these families and helping them get connected to the program and understand what they're joining and what services they'll be receiving. I know for me in my life, people are always asking me, like, how did you start doing this work? Why would you want to work with grief? And I'm curious, do you run into that question? And what led you to being part of this world? We do get that question often. This is Floor. What has led me to this work, let's see, (laughs) right after grad school, I started working at a large hospital here in Houston in our medical center. I was assigned to two different units, but in the work that I would do on a day-to-day basis, I ended up doing a lot of actually end-of-life work. And so sitting with families and the medical team and communicating 
news and updates to family and planning for whatever was coming after the hospital stay. In that, I just it just kind of happened that I happened to have two units where we saw a lot of death and um, would have those conversations often with families and patients. And so I got a lot of practice in those years at the hospital and became very comfortable in those types of moments. In Houston, I think it's both places, one of those places that if you're a social worker or a counselor in the mental health field, you know that both places here. So I'd always known that both places provided grief and bereavement and the opportunity came up to apply to be the Spanish Outreach Manager and it was just, it fit perfectly into what my interests were at the time. So you were really working in that before the death atmosphere and that's where you learned yes. to maybe be comfortable having those conversations. Mm-hmm. And Christina, how about you? For me... Very similar story to Flores. Straight out of graduate school, I also was a medical social worker down at one of the hospitals in the medical center here in Houston. And I was assigned to the neuro ICU and the neurosurgery acute care floor. So in my line of work, what I was having to do quite a bit as well is have those end-of-life conversations. Um, What made my work a little bit different than Flores is that it was a very sudden or unexpected death that was occurring because a lot of people don't know that they have something going on with their brain until something going on with their brain and so it quite a bit of my work was having to help people kind of accept the reality of what was going on and make that decision as to whether or not to either elect hospice or withdraw life-sustaining treatment. I was already involved in that type of work. My undergraduate degree is in child development. And so I, in the place of my heart, had always had a desire to work with kids again at some point. And both places kind of just fell into my lap in a place when I wasn't looking for a new job. But I it brought everything that I had been passionate about. Trying to see families on the long term after seeing them in the hospital was one of those things. Second, working with kids. And I was able to use my Spanish skills, of which I wasn't using as much in the hospital. And so I was really thrilled to be able to bring in all the components that I was really passionate about and really drew me to social work to begin with um, here at Bo's Place. I feel like so many of us in this field have a similar story of working in different areas, using some of our skills, and then coming together at a children's bereavement program and feeling like, this is what I've been wanting to do. And I'm really glad this place Mm -hmm. exists. Yes. So I'm curious, when you think over the last three years of the work that you've been doing in the Latino community, both in the schools and at Bo's Place for the ongoing grief support groups, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned along the way? This is for some of the um, really important lessons I think that we've come to, to learn here through our experience at Bose is that a lot of us in the community um, and even in mental health or, or outside of mental health sometimes think that Latinos have a hard time seeking out services and there's a lack of that want for the type of services that um, mental health nonprofits offer. Um, and really we've realized that it's a lot more about the accessibility of our services as we've made our services more accessible, we've seen a huge increase in the amount of people that are calling to register for groups. What are some of the barriers to accessibility that families were identifying? I think one of the ones that comes to mind right away is definitely just language barriers. And when we talk about language, it's really about who is the person that's going to answer the phone, the first person that they will talk to when they call your agency. Will they be able to speak Spanish, understand Spanish, or or transfer them right away to someone that is bilingual? Because I think what a lot of our agencies struggle with is finding the bilingual clinicians to be able to be in office to answer those first calls. And if you miss that first touch, a lot of times you 
you won't get that person or that family to call back. And so one of the biggest ones I think would be definitely language. And another would be transportation for some of our families, depending on the city or the the town that you're in. Transportation mixed in with work schedules, because for a lot of our families also, work schedules look a little different than for the traditional American family a lot of the times. And so that is why our Spanish-speaking groups here at Bo's Place, we actually offer them on weekends, both in the morning and the afternoon, either Saturday or Sunday, because we saw that a lot of our families wouldn't be able to make it if we did them even in the evenings on weekdays because they work such long hours so many of the times. So having to be really flexible about when the groups are offered to best meet when the families are actually available or able to come. Yep, it's it's crucial. You mentioned there's a thought out there that people in the Latino community are not accessing services because they aren't wanting those, but it's really more about whether or not there's barriers. Are there other misconceptions that people are carrying about working with Latino families? That's a very good question. I would, and this is Christina, I think the other component is to realize that our Spanish-speaking families are surviving in an English-speaking world, and so their ability to be able to understand some English is there, but what it really comes down to is what is the language of the heart, and understanding that the language of the heart can be varied within the family, and what might be one language for the parents can be a complete different language for the children. I think that's very important to denote as well, that an entire Spanish language program isn't going to work for the entire family. That's one of the components that we've remained mindful about in our programming here to where our adult groups are facilitated in Spanish. Our youngest age group, which is our five to seven-year-olds, have bilingual facilitators, but our other kids' groups are facilitated in English. Because what we also know is that the kids are going to school and that's becoming the language of their heart. It's important for folks to realize that the Latino community is not a monolithic group. I think it expands over 26 countries around there. And so you're talking about a large, large group of people that come from many different parts of Latin America, actually. Traditions vary. Languages vary. Everything is very different depending on countries and then even by countries, by regions in those countries. And so remembering that it's not a monolithic group that we're talking about is really key in the development of your programs. And I was really struck by that idea of the language of the heart and thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, there's a difference between English and Spanish, but also when we see families coming to our program, what's everyone's individual language of the heart? For some people, it's going to be artistic expression. For other people, it's going to be music. And for some people, it might be using their words. Right. You know, there's a lot around the term being culturally appropriate. And I'm curious, when you both hear that term, what comes to mind? What comes to mind is being aware that you're not going to be aware of every single cultural tradition that comes with a person as they walk through your door. Culturally appropriate, I think, is is one of those terms that's harder to understand just because it, it comes with, it's so heavy, what it encompasses, right? And so there has to be, I think, a cultural humility piece that comes along with it, really. And it's being able to say, you know, there is something that each of these families and each of these clients can teach me about their culture. It's going to be a lot more important than wanting to understand what are all of the things that I should know about this person. And this is Christina. What I also want to note to that is that the cultural appropriateness also encompasses cultural awareness of one's own culture. And so being able to acknowledge this is my culture and this is the culture that I'm coming from and I want to learn more about your culture is very important because in the same way that 
we have our clients or our families teach us about their traditions, we have to remain aware of where we're coming from. I can't tell you the number of times we've had people tell us, well, I grew up in this community. I'm kind of like them. And the kind of like isn't the same. I also um, will give the example that Floor's family is from one country. My family's from another country. And there are a number of times that we can't agree on a word that we want to use for our programming or phrasing or putting things together. We'll be in our office and kind of just try to get our mothers on the phone to try to dispute <laughs> conversations that we're having <laughs> as to what's the correct terminology, but being aware that we both recognize that we come from two very different cultures and still trying to understand the other to be able to provide the service to this larger community is very important. So when you mention cultural appropriateness, I also associate cultural awareness to that as well. And here at Both Place, we talk a lot about what each person's worldview is. In our trainings and in our conversations with volunteers, we, we have this discussion about what your personal worldview is, right? Because for a lot of people, when you start talking about culture, for some, it can be confusing, right? Because some people think, I don't have special cultural traditions. But if you think about it in a sense of what your worldview is, we each have a unique worldview that for some can be easier to understand when having that conversation of cultural awareness and cultural appropriateness. Seems like a broader term that could encompass so much around Mm -hmm. the economic world that you grew up in, the education world that you grew up in, all the different things that we take in both explicitly and implicitly from how we were raised Mm -hmm. and where we were raised. Exactly. Do you have a sense of how losses other than deaths affect the grief of the families that you work with? Yes, what we see is that we see our families who are coming in as first, second, or third generation here in the U.S. And so we either have the loss of homeland of where they came from, where parents grew up, where the kids have grown up, the home that they knew, now trying to assimilate to this new culture, and then you add a death on top of that makes it very complicated. There's also what the entire immigration journey brings, whether or not it was a choice or a need to leave, whether there was a death in the home country or the native country to prompt the journey to the U.S., whether or not they have, what their documentation status is here and the implications that that has as well. At the same time, if a death has occurred in their home country and they're here in the U.S. and unable to go back for the services, we who work in grief know how important it is for people to be able to say goodbye to their person who's died. And so not being able to have that because of XYZ reason at times can put different barriers or bumps along the grief journey. I think we also see you know, maybe mom and dad were engineers and, and teachers in their home country, in their native country, and then they make it here, and they don't have that availability to do that anymore. And so there's a loss of income, a very different style of living that they're used to because of a need for safety as well. So realizing that there's a wide variety of other losses that maybe aren't as tangible or as easy to put into a tangible way of talking about that these families are carrying with them. Yes, for sure. Those secondary losses are going to definitely impact their journey. And with the idea that if the person in their family who died died in their in their home country and they are unable to travel back to be part of any memorial services or funerals or other ways that people are saying goodbye, have you seen ways that people have adapted or created their own rituals for doing that if they aren't able to travel back? Here at Both Place, we work very much to 
be intentional with our families in the sense of helping them create that continuing bond and have some form of memorialization. Financially speaking, it's it's very hard to go out and start your own scholarship fund or, you know, start your own race, but we provide them with ideas of what they could do. And so some people um, will have some sort of service here. We've seen balloon release is probably the number one thing I, I hear of. They'll just gather a couple of friends together and tie some balloons, do that ceremonial goodbye in that regard. And another um, tradition that a lot of families from different parts of Latin America also have is and specifically Mexico, because of the tradition of um, Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead, a lot of families have uh, mini altars at their houses and that they stay up sometimes throughout the entire year and that they memorialize or honor their loved one in that way in their household. And so at both places, we've actually began... Um, to offer that as a part of our special programming. We create two altars, one here at Bose Place and one out in the community at an exhibit for Day of the Dead. And throughout the month of October, all families that participate in Bose Place programs are welcome to bring mementos to place on the altars. And we um, you know, all participate in honoring our loved ones through that tradition here at Bose. Oh, and you, so you offer that at Bose Place and then also out in the community as well. Right. There's two altars that we build. And it's also, so, sorry, this is Christina. Um, the thing with our altars is this will be our fourth year of having the two altars. And, and as they're becoming a tradition or a ritual of Bo's Place as well, we're seeing the larger Bo's Place family participating in, in the ritual or the tradition as well. And so our altar that we build in our living room, what started off as a small corner of the living room now takes up half the living room, and um, it's a pretty large living room. And then in the community, we have also implemented a community component as well, where people who are walking by our altar have a way to commemorate the life of their person who died, whether or not they're a Bose Place family member. They can add post-its or um, different calaveras or the the skulls that are typically associated with Day of the Dead to the altar um, as a way to commemorate that life of their loved one as well. And we're bringing these elements into our our programming here, but also at the same time educating the rest of the community as to not only what it is that we do, but how we're implementing um, different components of this tradition within the certain parts of the culture into the larger programming here as well. It seems like it's resonating quite a bit for people regardless of their background. Along those lines, are there particular activities or topics that seem to work well with kids and or adults? Um, one of the things that we've noticed um, throughout the years and through our programming is that for our Spanish-speaking groups, our families get really excited and into the, the family activities. And what that means is that usually as we go, um, as we participate in the support groups, everyone is in their own support group. So we separate children by age and grade level. Adults are with other adults. But when we uh, have a family activity for the day, the entire family works on that activity together. And so being able to have to have those activities offered once in a while for our Latino families has been something really impactful. And we see that they truly um, enjoy being able to do that type of work together here at Bo's Place. You know, that familismo aspect of it, right? When we talk about Latino families, um, one of the really big cultural components is that our family isn't just immediate family. A lot of the time it's that extended family. And 
And so we're very, you know, used to being able to do things together and um, being able to honor our loved ones together in this, these activities and learning how to communicate with one another and support one another in that way has been of interest to a lot of our families. And so we try to incorporate more and more of these family activities now. Do you find that the teens are also eager to participate as a whole family? So uh, this is Christina. We still believe that the peer support model works very well because the ability to be able to share with others who are within your age group who have experienced a similar situation, it, as, as those of us who work in this field and, ha- and work in grief support know that the model works in that regard. Family activities that we'll do, we'll add them in quarterly or so, and the teens are eager to sit down with their younger siblings and help them out. And at the same time, there's this level of almost pride that each family takes in what they're creating. There are times that some of our teen boys aren't too keen on sitting down for 40 minutes with their parents (laughs) and doing an art activity, but they will still participate. And I think that's what makes that experience really unique because we also do the family activities in our English-speaking groups, and at times our teens are not too keen on being downstairs uh, with their younger siblings. It's really interesting to think about because I know for us, occasionally we'll do like a candle lighting all together with kids and their adults or teens and their adults, and kids who are pretty open in group don't say anything in the candle lighting once their adult is in the room. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to think about teens being pulled in from that idea of I'm going to help my younger siblings or as a family, we're going to create this thing together and be really proud of what we're doing together. Actually took into account this cultural value of family into one of our special programs. In the spring, we have a Camp Healing Hearts, which is your traditional kind of camp environment um, where we have cabins. In each cabin, there's like a five to seven-year-old girl's cabin and a five to seven-year-old boy's cabin. The entire family goes on this weekend adventure at a grief camp. But for our Spanish-speaking families, we came up with uh, Retiro Sanando Corazones, or Camp Healing Hearts in Spanish. And so essentially in in this camp, all of our, the family stays together. So the family's in a cabin by themselves and they do all the traditional camp activities together. So they do the ropes course together and they do the canoeing together and the horseback riding together. And we'll ask the kids who have gone to both, which one do do you prefer? Do you prefer going to being with your peers in your own cabin or do you prefer being with your family? And they honestly can't answer the question. They say they like both of them. They like being able to meet other kids their own age, but at the same time, they love being able to see their parents laugh again or look like they're having fun again or they enjoy spending that time together. And how fantastic that they have the opportunity to do both and they can be in that place of saying, don't make me choose which one I like better because they both are helpful to me. So in our last few moments, I would love to hear how how has this work changed each of you? This is Floor. I think it definitely has given me a, another view on... Um, the preciousness of every moment that we have. And so really being able to sit with and be with families in those moments where it's hard to find a friend or a family member that's willing to do that has been so such an honor. 
and it is on a day-to-day basis being able to be the first person that someone speaks to to do an intake or to say to a family, yes, we provide services in Spanish and they are free of charge. That in and of itself has been such a huge um, life changer just because in social work and I think in mental health, um, services are so scarce that being able to say they are free and they're in Spanish is so huge. And how about for you, Christina? For me, it amazes me the the resiliency of people. It renders me speechless at times to know that throughout all this adversity and everything that they have to go through and the difficulty of their grief journey that they have before them, with all that, our families, um, specifically our Spanish-speaking families, are so incredibly grateful and it's it's a completely different level of gratitude than I've ever seen in my life. It has taught me to appreciate the small things and to know that, you know, humans are capable of so much and that we're so resilient um, given the support and the love that that we all have. Um, and then I think in the same way that, as Flora just explained, um, having come from a previous job where I had to say no quite often, being able to say yes um, yes, it's in Spanish. Yes, your kids can come. Yes, it's free. Is such an incredible feeling, and I can't tell you the number of times that I have sat um, orienting a new family to Bo's place. That before, as I'm getting through my spiel of just talking about the what we do here at Bo's place, I've had a number of dads just stop me and say, "Wait, wait, wait!" But how much does it cost? Because um, this is too good to be true, and I tell them, no, you know, we're we're completely free, and I just see the weight of the world lifted off of their shoulders, and they sink into the into the couches. I think just on on that matter of being able to see those and being able to say that, I'm just immensely filled with gratitude, uh, and I and that has definitely changed since I started in this work. I'm grateful for the small things and grateful for the big things, and just for everything in between. Absolutely. I know for us here, we'll have families who call and they, you know, they're telling us their story of who died and asking about the services. And as soon as they find out it's free, that's when the tears come. This is Christina. I just wanted to share one quick story that I had about a family who was recently arrived to the U.S. as they had experienced the murder of one of their family members in their home country and had fled seeking asylum here. And they were seeking grief support groups. And so we were orienting them. And as I'm going through everything, Dad just kind of breaks down and starts crying and says, never in my life would I had ever imagined being able to come into this country and be welcomed into an organization like this with open arms. And that, at that moment, I was like, that's just why we do what we do in that regard, to know that this is a safe place for everyone. So, so powerful. And I'm just really grateful to both of you for the work that you've been doing for the last three years and to both place for starting that work many years ago. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your work, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? We have our website. That's just bosplace.org. Our website actually is in English and there's a special button on the top hand right corner when you click on it will translate the website to spanish and so the whole website kind of flipped to spanish and so the website is one way another way is just emailing us or calling both place directly our emails is just our first name at bosplace.org or flor at bosplace.org christina at bosplace.org and bosplace phone number 713-942-8339 i just wanted to 
tag one last thing into what Flor just mentioned. For the community who's out there and trying to work with this population, but um, still in the baby stages and trying to figure out where do I even begin or where do I find resources in Spanish, I do want to point out that our website has a, like, I, I can't even tell you, maybe about 18 or so parent handouts, both in English and in Spanish. Great. Well, I will link directly to that that area of your website as well. So thank you both so much for taking time to talk with me today and to be on our podcast. Yeah, thanks for featuring us, Jenna. It's it's always great to be able to share a little bit more about what we what we do here, and especially if we since we think that it can help others either start their program, make sure nurture their programs, grow. All of that is a very it's an exciting time in the field for us, and we will we love to be a resource for uh, for anyone out there looking to get into this work. Well, thank you. And for listeners out there, thanks for tuning in today. Two things to note, we are planning a name change for our podcast. So that is coming soon. Stay posted. I will keep you informed of when that's going to happen. And if you want to explore any of our past episodes, we are this is episode 58, so there's quite a few to choose from. You can find them on our website, dougy.org, or in iTunes or any other podcast platform that you might use. So thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.